BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, June 18th, 2020. The headlines in the newspaper, or at least in the New York Times, Bolton Book says Trump's offensives exceeded Ukraine. That's the headline. That's what's going on in the world of the New York Times today. Uh, but of course, you could be listening to this anytime. Uh, it's a podcast, so we could be listening it 30 years from now. And what we're talking about will be relevant then because we're talking about a movie uh, that I think will be relevant for quite some time. That's my opinion anyway. Uh, let's, uh, as I do on all bonus shows, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest named Danielle, introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Danielle Scruggs. I'm a photo editor, photographer, and writer based here in the greatest city in the world, Chicago. Okay. I'm not sure I agree with you on the greatest city in the world part of that statement, Danielle, but well, you're free to say what you want. Uh, uh, other distinguished guests, introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I was stunned by that comment, too. I was just like, really? Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Sergio Bim, and uh, um, film critic, film journalist, DVD commentator, and, of course, the um, co-founder, co-programmer of the Black Harvest Film Festival. All right, we're about to take the deep dive on Five Bloods, Spike Lee's uh, latest movie, which dropped on Netflix. Uh, and uh, we'll probably get into a whole lot about Spike Lee in general uh, beyond the movie. And before we go any further, I just want to tell everybody out there, disclaimer up front, we're not going to hold back. So we're going to do spoilers. We're just going to talk about the movie as though you've seen it. So like we did uh, when Serge and I talked about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you really don't want to know what happens uh, in this movie, just come back and listen to us again after you've seen the movie. And maybe, you know, the things that Danielle and Sergio say will help you understand or comprehend or come to terms with whatever you're feeling. So uh, there'll be a lot of spoiler alerts. And finally, before I get started on uh, Defy Bloods, Sergio, please, updates on the Black Harvest Film Festival uh, how have you been affected by the pandemic? What's going on with this year's festival? Well, we had actually a meeting a few days ago. Well, a Zoom call, you know. And by the way, let me just get this off my chest. <laughs> Zoom calls will never be able to replace meetings, person-to-person meetings. I've been hearing this. It's the new wave of the future. I think people really want contact with other people you know zoom is fine particularly uh if you're uh, talking to friends who are uh don't live in the city or don't live in the state who are um uh, in another state or another country which i've done but it doesn't replace people to people contact so let me get off my chest okay in terms of what i said we had a meeting and uh, black harvest is still going on um, we, some of the things we have done, we have pushed back the, um, usually the deadline for submissions is the first weekend of June. Mm-hmm. We have pushed that back to September 1st. We still have films coming in. As a matter of fact, just this morning, I was approached by a filmmaker about their film. Mm-hmm. Um, not as many as we usually get, which is not surprising. Uh, it will take place this fall. Uh, we don't have the dates yet. A lot of it depends on what the Chicago National Film Festival is planning to do. We haven't heard yet. Uh, we have several options on the table about how this is going to, um, what form Black Harvest will take this year. Um, it's unusual times. Yeah. Uh, so the festival, it, the festival will take place. 
it won't be the usual festival that people have grown to uh, know and love. Uh, for one thing, for sure, it'll be shorter. Uh, Black Harvest is usually is almost always a month long. It's definitely not going to be that long this year. Uh, wait till next year. So there you go. Okay. It's still a work in progress. There's still some decisions we have to make uh, among ourselves and the committee, but it will happen. Um, maybe just not the way you usually used to seeing Black Harvest. But it will happen. And once again, let me emphasize that everything that has happened so far, think about this, folks, has only happened in the last three months, overnight. It wasn't a year in the making. So who knows what the next three months could be like? Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, and there's some relevance. Black Harvest Film Festival, every year, Sergio and uh, his uh, colleagues, they, they bring back an older movie, uh, like a 25th year anniversary uh, uh, I don't movie. think it's going to happen this year. It's it's okay, but last year, uh, they had Crooklyn, and that's of relevance. Yeah. That's uh, one of Spike Lee's great movies, in my humble opinion. Um, so, Danielle, Danielle, let's start with you. Uh, I've, I've, I've surveyed everybody for their general opinions on Defied Bloods, so I kind of know where you're going to go in a general sense, but why don't you share it with our listeners uh, your general thoughts about Defied Bloods. Yeah, I did not like it. <laughs> um, I think it suffers from a problem that a lot of Spike movies have had, where um, she's trying to fit like three different movies into one, <laughs> and um, for me it didn't quite work. Like I'm, like I wasn't sure. Like okay, is this like a retelling of the treasure of the Sierra Madre, or is this like Black Apocalypse Now, or is this supposed to be a meditation on, um, you know, intergenerational trauma, or is this you know Black Rambo like? It was just a lot. It was just like a lot going on, and I don't think that he pulled all the threads together in a really cohesive way. Um, and yeah, I just—I <laughs> was disappointed by it, to, to be honest. Um, I, I thought it was going to be a lot better than it turned out to be. Now, before I turn over to Sergio get his general views, I just want to make sure you did watch it all the way through correct? Yeah. Okay. The reason I asked that, Danielle, is that a number of people I've discovered since the, the last time I talked to you or late talked to you and Sergio last week when I booked the show is that I've several people I know dropped out about 20 minutes or a half hour into the movie, uh, which caught me off guard. Really? Yeah. I, I was absorbed by the movie. I was, I, I, as you know, we've had this conversation already. I, I, I got into it and, uh, but I've just been, I'm not quite sure it's, um, it, it, it's, it says so much about the movie, or maybe it does, but just the viewing habits of people in movies when they're streamed, people, in my humble opinion, are so conditioned to, to checking in and out of um, streaming ventures. So, like, they're so used to watching show, serials, you get what I'm saying? So, but I don't know if that it's that or anything else, but you did watch it to the end, correct? Yeah, I I watched it the full way through. It definitely felt like two and a half hours. <laughs> um, I like I definitely felt every one of those like hours and every one of those minutes. Um, I think it could have benefited from being cut down a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, no, no, I definitely watched the full thing. Um, and you know, something else that bothered me about it was the use of like kind of mixing in real life violence with like fictional violence. Um, and I think, you know, for example, using footage of, you know, the Kent State uh, students who were murdered or, you know, using footage of that um, Viet Cong soldier who was uh, shot to death. Like, um, I thought that using that in that context didn't feel earned. Um, and I felt the same way when, uh, um, well, I guess spoiler alert for Black Klansmen, if you still haven't seen that, but at the end of Black Klansmen, um, like we used footage of, uh, the, the, um, the car of the man running his car into the crowd of protesters at Charlottesville. 
and again, like I felt like that wasn't really turned. Um, I think that, I think there's definitely a place for violence in movies. I think like you can use violence to like really further enhance a story or like further drive home a point. But like in, in this movie in particular, in Defied Bloods, like I felt like it just felt excessive and it just felt like there was gore for the sake of there being gore and those, um, those examples of like real life violence of people who actually really died during that time. So very, um, it just felt excessive and it felt kind of like you don't, you don't need this to drive home your point about how violent those times were and kind of like how violent times are right now. Like it, it just felt, it, it just felt really unnecessary to me. And like, yeah. All right, Sergio, your thoughts, your general thoughts. Um, well, good, because, see, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, is it messy? Yeah. Like, everything Spike has done is messy. Um, I think it, it comes to a point now where this is a Spike Lee film, so you know what you're going to get. Just like if this was a Martin Scorsese film, you know what you're going to get. If this was a Tyler Perry film, you know what you're going to get. Uh, particular directors have particular approaches, the way they approach their film. And this movie, uh, Five Bloods, is like a lot of Spike Lee films. Um, there are scenes that go on too long. There are scenes where you say to yourself, well, what was the point of that? But then you have to think later about what he was trying to do. Uh, with that particular scene. Uh, you can argue it's unstructured. And this is it, 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 there's a difference between spike independent and spike controlled, right? And what I mean by that is, say, a film like Inside Man, for, which he did for a studio, he made for a very tough producer, Brian Glazier. So Brian Glazier was going to sit on him. But when Spike Lee is on his own, you know, sometimes his words and pulses uh, get a hold of him. Despite that, I think at times this is a really remarkable film. I think Spike Lee sometimes approaches a level he has that he's never approached before. Um, uh, it's not perfect like any Spike Lee film, but um, I think there's so much good stuff in this picture. And I, can, I also I disagree with Danielle when she said he's trying to stuff three movies in this film. More like he's trying to stuff ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's even worse. In this yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, all right. But I, I loved it. I mean, I've seen it twice already. And I will I will say I will say uh for for um uh what this disclosure that uh, I'm a friend of one of the screenwriters, Kevin Wilmot. He um uh is an interesting guy. He's a professor of film at the University of Kansas, but he has co written the last few with Spike, the last few of his pictures, including Black Klansman, he won the Oscar for that with Spike. Um, and as a matter of fact, I was in touch with him before I saw the picture. I happened to see the film a few days before Netflix sent me a a, a sent me a, a way to watch it in a preview. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it again the weekend it opened, and then I talked to Kevin again. And um, it's Maybe I'm a bit prejudiced because I'm a friend with the screenwriters, but still, uh, I think at times it's really remarkable. And and um, Delroy Lindo is unbelievable. unbelievable. All right, now mm-hmm. uh, before uh, I, I go any further, let's get specific, uh, uh, Sergio, and then I, I'll ask Danielle to get specific as well. First of all, I just want to say I'm I'm much more in, in tune with Sergio in this. I've I've already seen it twice, as I told Danielle, but I did fast forward as th- the second time through the battle scenes. I had, I just when I when I think of the inconsistencies of of movies in general, Spike Lee movies in particular, it's often battle scenes in movies. I think where the directors lose sense of things. So the second time I saw it, Sergio, I just ah, there's no there's nothing I want to see in this, so I just fast forward through it. 
uh, and got to the scenes where the characters are interacting. All right, you said something, Sergio. Let's follow up on it uh, with specificities. You were talking about different scenes in Spike Lee movies, and there's some scenes where you, when you first see it, leave you baffled as to what are you getting at? And then later on, it, it hits home. Uh, can you think of a moment like that in Oh, yeah, the for five- example, I'll give you two. Um, one is the scene in the bar, early on in the picture, when they're in the bar. Mm-hmm. And the person, the one-legged beggar comes to see them. And um, But that scene goes on and on. And you're like, okay, where's this thing going? And then um, there's a payoff at the very end, at the end of that scene, okay? Um but also, almost close to the very end of the movie, there is another payoff that refers to the character, the beggar, in, in that thing. Um, so you have to watch the film because sometimes you're like, where's this going? Mm-hmm. He may not really make you, he may not even give you the sense of where to make the connection until much later on in the picture. There's another scene in the movie where... Um, uh, they're in Saigon, and it's a scene involving the chicken and Delroy Linda. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, one more uh, detail about it. I felt that yeah. scene went on too long. And as a matter of fact, I had some uh, debate with some friends who really liked that scene. And I said, okay, I know where he's going with this. I know what he's trying to imply, in particular, with Delroy Lindo's character. I understand it. And as the film goes on, you you see what the film is referring to in the fact that he is a mentally unstable person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I somehow I felt that scene was awkwardly done, the scene with the chicken. And once again, it went on too long, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but once again, that Spike, he's one of those directors who seems to be in love with his material. But and can't bear to cut away. I, I got to tell you, I love um, that I scene with that. the t- chicken. That that was classic Spike Lee uh, for me, anyway. Uh, I love that scene with the chicken. Uh, Daniel, did you have any moments, any scenes mm-hmm. uh, similar to what uh, Sergio is uh, describing, where you were baffled and then suddenly you had illumination, or did you have no scenes uh, that worked for you? <laughs> um, well, I will say that. You know, I think despite so many inconsistencies, um, what worked for me, the few things that worked for me in the movie was Gilroy Lindo's performance. Um, I think he definitely, you know, portrays someone who is like in mental anguish and really portrays someone who is um, dealing with like untreated trauma. And I think, I definitely think that scene um, with the chicken, which I, it sounds so absurd if you don't have the context, but, uh, but yeah, I think that scene with the chicken, like really, it did go on too long. Um, but I also think that that really highlighted, you know, where he was mentally and like how unstable he was and like mm-hmm. how, um, and also he's destabilized for a very specific reason, right? Like he didn't, it didn't just happen. Like it's because like he went through some very specific experiences and, um, and went through, um, it's basically like an illustration of just how much he sacrificed for this country and nothing was given back to him in return. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought that, you know, his performance throughout the movie was really powerful. And I just wish that he would given better material and like more consistent material to work with but um but yeah i will say that his um his moments of like realize of like when you see just like how much how much damage has been done and how much pain he's in um i thought was really compelling uh search- also, yeah, go ahead let me just add, mm-hmm. because I'm afraid he may be overlooked, but Clark Peters oh, is yeah. really the heart and soul of this yes. film. Yeah. Talk yes. about it, Sergio. Um, he really I, is the heart and soul of this yeah. film. And he is one of those really great actors who's always been sort of overlooked and underrated. And he is wonderful in this picture. And some of the final scenes in this movie are really quite moving. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, that was in my notes as well. Uh, Delroy Lindo and Park Street Peters were kind of like the redeeming, <laughs> the redeeming factors of this movie. And I definitely agree with you. I think Park Peters is um, one of the most underrated actors working right now. It's him and Rob Morgan, who every time you see them, no matter what project they're in, no matter how you know, how many lines they have, like how little or how long they're in a specific project. Like, he just, he brings so much depth and so much soul to like everything that he's in. And um, he was like one of the few things that I actually believed. <laughs> you know, that like as I was like watching this movie, like he's so grounded and he's so... He's also in pain. Um, it's definitely not as um, it's not as obvious. It's like not as at the forefront as like Joe Raimondo, for example. But he's obviously someone else who's in a great deal of pain, and he dealt with it in different ways. Oh, well, he is physically, pain. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he is physically in pain. Physically um, and emotionally. Yeah, physically and emotionally, and those things are very much connected. Um, so yeah, I think that. He he was definitely one of the best parts of the movie, um, and he was definitely like, yeah, that that was like a part of the movie where it's like, okay, like I'm with you, Spike. I'm with you. There are just so many other parts of the movie where I'm like, ooh, I'm I'm not with you. I'm not with you there. <laughs> now, in terms of the violence in the film, I I have to old, I have to get this off my chest because this is a pet peeve with me, particularly with movies today. Um, I'm old school, okay. So, you know, when you see somebody using a gun or somebody getting shot, do you do you uh, de-squib? You know, you put the squib on a guy's clothes, packed with fake blood, and then when you get shot, you see the blood spurt out. And then when you use guns, they would use uh, blanks that emit a flash, you know, a half load or a full load. Well, the problem with the movie is that in a lot of movies today, all that stuff is CGI. Part of it, I think, is laziness because then you don't have to, if, if you shoot it, if you use blood script, then you, when you, every time you do a take, you got to put on a new shirt and repack the script and do all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of lazy, but it's really bad in this film. The CGI effects are really bad, really subpar. And I brought this up to somebody, a friend of mine didn't notice it. Now, a lot of it has to do with Netflix because Netflix not going to spend a lot of money unless you're Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. right. Then they just they waste the money. Another hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah. The movie already cost a hundred million dollars. They'll give you another hundred million dollars to do this whole digital thing to make the actors look younger, and that really didn't work that well, right? So I said, so you know, but you see, but it works in the film because I love the fact in the flashback, you know, you saw the actors as they were today. Yeah. And I think that works beautifully because even though they're remembering the past, they're still very much in the present. Dan. So I like the fact that he, he didn't try to do any sort of effect to make these guys appear younger. But still, you know, you could have given a couple more bucks <laughs> so then the special effects would, so you could have done more practical effects instead of CGI stuff, which was really kind of cut right in chances. All right, look, I'll put this out here, and then Daniel will get your response. I agree with you. The, uh, the, um, when the, 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 those de-aging effects that uh, Scorsese used uh, in The Irishman were ridiculous and a waste of money, and I wish he had never signed on with Netflix because he claimed he signed on with Netflix, Sergio and Danielle, because they gave him the money to do that. I'm like, well, that's why you signed on? You okay. Now, I think yeah, what Spike did was better, but I would have preferred just using younger actors. Uh, that's just yeah. me. Danielle, what's your thoughts? You mean, you well, mean, you mean, mean in the five less, or you mean in, in what? Both. I believe <laughs> that double cast. So in The Irishman, instead of having Robert De Niro and that cockamamie de-aging thing where he still looks like an uh, older man when he's running, they should just have used a young, a 30-year-old actor to, who, to play that role. Double cast. And similarly in Defy Bloods, 
I like it's better in my humble opinion the way they did it. And I understand exactly what you're getting at, uh, Sergio. But I still would have preferred like having actors who are roughly the same way age as uh, Chadwick uh, Boseman. That's well, no, I don't think it would have worked because in this case, because as I said before, Vietnam is still with them. It's still a part of the present of the pre- of of the present, mm-hmm. right? So I think the way it would have removed us from the picture if we had seen some of the Asian effect or Asian effect or um, different actors, younger actors playing the part. You know, Vietnam for these men are still very much a, a, part, a large part of who they are and what they have become. So I think it worked perfectly that in the in the in the uh, you know, in the flashbacks, we still see them as the men that they are in the present. I just, I just think it worked, worked very well that way. Danielle? Well, uh, and I don't, it didn't really take me out of the picture to see them looking the way they look now. Um, I mean, just going back to the Irishman really quickly, um, I thought the Z-Agent looked ridiculous. Everyone looked very uncanny valley, very plastic. <laughs> So, um, and yeah, Martin Scorsese said that he went to Netflix specifically because they gave him the money that traditional studios wouldn't give him. So I also do think it's interesting, though, that Netflix just told Spike Lee straight up, we're not going to give you money to gauge <laughs> um, the actors. And also, um, apparently, Spike Lee had to fight to use 16 millimeter film for the flashback. So I thought, like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, so going back to... The flashbacks, um, I think it also brings home the fact that, um, you know, they had a chance to age and get older. And um, Tyler Bozeman's character did not get that chance because, um, because you know, he died um, at war. And so, you know, we see the flashbacks and like Sergio was saying, it's like we get the sense that um, this is very much still in the present for them. Um, like they're kind of like simultaneously living in the past and the present at the same time. And then it also like kind of, again, gets that loss, you know, like he, he um, Stormy Norman stayed young um, because he didn't get a chance to get older the way that they did. So, um, so yeah, that, that actually didn't really take me out of it or it, I, I wasn't thinking like, Oh, they should be younger actors or anything like that. All right. Now, uh, Often, more often than not, uh, Sergio, when you come on this show, uh, you're, we talk politics. We don't just talk movies. Uh, and there's just folks who are hearing Sergio for the first time have missed him on the other show. He's known to be very critical of Donald Trump. So I say all that as a way of introducing this next topic. The, the fact that uh, uh, Delroy Lindo's character is a MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporter and it's a very profound move by Spike Lee, and I personally think it was very effective. Uh, I'd love to hear both of you on this topic. We'll start with you, Sergio. Uh, talk about uh, the fact that uh, Delroy Lindo's character wore the MAGA hat. Well, you know, Spike has always been interested in all the different dichotomies among black people. Uh, you know, I call this film, uh, I call Spike Blood, it's... Um, Treasure Sierra Madre meets Get on the Bus. Yeah. Yes. Um, because on Get on the Bus, as we recall, there was another character who was this staunch conservative person who, in spite of the action in a way, treated him unfairly because I recall he was thrown off the bus and we didn't see him again. And I said, well, no, it would have been interesting to have that guy still on the trip and then we see how he evolved during this trip yeah. to the Million Man March. That would have been interesting. Uh, but... Uh, to get to get back to the point of uh, Amaga Hadwarin, I I read this interview with Delroy Lindo, where uh, when he said he got the script and he called Spike, he said, "Look, uh, <laughs> I really don't want to play this guy wearing a Amaga hat. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. can you can you change this?" And Spike said, "I'll get back to you." And he called him back in a couple of days. So he said, "No, you really got to wear that Amaga hat." Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but basically. It may not seem to go anywhere, but it, it, that's the whole, but as I said before, that's the point of what Spike is doing, this whole dichotomy does among black people. You know, that we're not a monolith, we all don't think alike. We all had different, different opinions. And um, uh, as, as I uh, 
was thinking about this picture, I said, this film is just like Treasure Sierra Madre meets Get on the Bus. It's a spike film about a group of black men uh, who, uh, from different walks of life, who get together to on their way to the Million Man March. And if you recall, there was a conservative, very conservative character, Republican character on that bus, uh, on that trip. And, um, you, you know, um, the, the point that I think Spike was trying to make, of course, is the ironic point, is that at the end of the move, well, like I said, I don't want to give away any major plot points or anything. Go ahead. But, We've already given the disclaimer, so go ahead. Just say okay. it. Okay. But Roy Lindell doesn't make it. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, this one shot of the hat, his red MAGA hat being thrown on him. And the first thing I thought to myself, well, how did that work out for you? Yeah. You know, all your beliefs and all your different attitudes. And one of the things which I've always believed is that Black people who tend to be, who tend, not all, not all of them, but many people, many black people who tend to have, um, tend to be very conservative in their political outlook seem to have the superior, superior attitude that they're different from other black people. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not like you kind. I'm not like your kind. I'm not like you guys. I'm different. Right, and there is an element of that in Delroy Lindo. He does have this superior attitude, where he thinks that he's better than a lot of most black people. And at the, at the end of the movie, it's once it's like I said, it's like, well, how did that work out for you? Yeah, he's uh, still a dead black man at the end. Yeah. Hmm. Danielle, your thoughts? Hmm. I mean, it was definitely jarring to see um, a black man running around wearing a MAGA hat for, you know, most of the runtime <laughs> of the movie. Um, and actually, Sergio, you gave me a lot to think about because initially I thought it was kind of like cheap sensationalism. Um, and I don't know. I, I guess like maybe maybe I didn't give Spikey enough credit. I don't know. But to me, <laughs> when I... <laughs> When I initially saw it, like, I wasn't thinking, like, he's trying to show that, like, black people aren't a monolith and that, you know, there are, unfortunately, um, and it is specifically black men <laughs> who, you know, who vote for Trump, who, you know, have, like, some rallies. Or, like, I, I work as a photo editor, and so, like, I worked on news stories about this very thing. So it's definitely a real thing, but... um and yeah, like definitely like that scene of, you know, his body and like having like the red hat on it. Like, what did that actually get you? Um, that, that's something that I didn't think about in terms of what you were talking about, Sergio. I was like, when I first saw it, I just thought like, okay, that's like being psyched. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, just like kind of being extremely preachy and like extremely like, you know, kind of knocking you over the head with the message. Um, but I think that is like another way to consider, consider like that whole thing of like a black man walking around kind of espousing these same, um, uh, hateful talking points. Um, is that like, you know, where, where does that actually get you? And like, where, why do you think that that makes any difference? Because ultimately you're still going to be treated like a black person mm -hmm. um in in this society so so yeah i i didn't initially think that it was something beyond cheap sensationalism but maybe he was uh trying to get at something a little bit deeper and yeah like yeah okay like i'll give you a, a personal example this just happened yesterday and this ties into monroe anderson on your show yesterday talking about the case involving the shooting in Atlanta mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. parking lot. I'm sorry, I cannot remember the man who was Richard murdered. Again. Brooks. Richard Brooks. Uh, mm -hmm. Richard his Brooks. Name was Brooks. Brooks, mm -hmm. right. Okay. Uh, um, I got into this Twitter debate with someone I know, and he's a black guy, and some other a group of us, in which this guy, this 
the guy was trying to defend the police shooting. And we, and so many other people said, no, wait a minute, this guy was shot in the back. He was shot in the back, running away. He was not a threat. And then it came out in the video, I heard this morning, the video today, that after he was shot and killed, there is evidence on the tape that the police officer who shot him walked forward over to him and kicked him in the back. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. Now, this now, this guy who's trying to defend the police, well, you know the police was justified. He was coming from an attitude like, I know better than you guys. I know better because I'm a gun owner, and I know better than you guys, and these police were justified. And this is why I was referring to Lindo's character. A lot of black conservatives have this attitude like, well, I'm better than most black people. You know, I'm not like your kind. No, wait, Sergio, you was, the, was uh, the person you were debating on Twitter, was it a black man? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Okay. Well, right, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, just wanted to make that clear. You, you know, Sergio, right. when you were... Guy. And, and, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, and, and I, I think Spike really captures that, you know, because, now I'm not saying all black conservatives, but a lot of black conservatives, even and particularly the more extreme ones, has a superior attitude. You know, you know the reason why you people are in trouble is because it's your fault, which is what white mm-hmm. people, say, white people say, it's your fault. I'm not like you. I'm better. Yeah. Well, how good is it going to be when you're stopped by a cop? Mm-hmm. And then before you know, you got four bullets up your ass. You know, right? You know how. How, you know, it doesn't matter if you're wearing a MAGA hat or if you think that Trump is a great president, you're still a black guy. You, you know, Sergio, I listen to you. I'm flashing back to that scene. Now, follow me in this. That scene that opens up uh, in the bar, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's a great scene, in my humble opinion, uh, whether it goes on too long or not, where uh, they're all sitting there and they get, end up getting the Viet Cong, buy him a drink, the former Viet Cong, John B. And that's when Del, uh, Delroy Lindo reveals that he voted for Trump. And all of his right. comrades just start rolling their eyes and mocking him. Because you know they've had conversations like that in the past with like the one guy, you know what I mean? The one guy who was for Trump. But essentially, I've been listening to you. Think about this, uh, Sergio and Danielle. Essentially, Spike Lee is saying, in order for a black man to be for Donald Trump, he has to be insane. He has to be (laughs) driven crazy by his PTSD. That's effectively the point he was making because – we come to really, or at least I'm speaking for myself, come to really um, just empathize with uh, Delroy Lindo's character, Paul, that's his name, Paul, because he's just, his mind has been brutalized and tortured and he's a wreck. In the end, he's just talking. Uh-huh. And, and I think ultimately, what I'm listening to you, that that was Spike Lee's point. Well, you know, if there's a form of insanity that's overtaken people in this country that has led some black people to support Donald Trump. What do you think of that, Sergio? Well, you know. Go ahead. You, no, go ahead. You can answer. Go ahead, go ahead, Danielle. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I I don't want to say that people are voting for Trump because of insanity. <laughs> um, I okay, think, I'll say that. Go ahead. Like, <laughs> well, no, because, well, no. But the, the point I'm trying to make is, like, I don't want to let people off the hook, mm-hmm. right? Because if you really are actually, you know, if you have like a mental pro- health problem, that kind of like advocates responsibility, right? And people are making an active choice to say, I support Trump, I support the wall, I support all these other just horrible, hateful things, right? So I don't want to necessarily say that like, oh, well, you know, if you vote for Trump, you're just crazy. It's like, no, like, you are making an active choice to say, this is the kind of country that I want. I want a country that, you know, traffics in white supremacist ideology. And, you know, and I think point, I guess like what I'm saying is that, you know, you can uphold the white supremacist ideology and still be black or still be Latino or still be, you know, whatever. Like you don't necessarily have to be white to uphold these structures. And so I I don't think it's necessarily insanity. I think it's more so 
people making destructive choices and either not realizing or not caring that that destruction is going to be turned on them as well eventually. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's um, somebody who I'm kind of bizarrely fascinated by is Tim Scott. You know, the mm -hmm. Republican senator from oh, yeah, South, yeah. Carolina? Mm -hmm. South Carolina? South Carolina, yeah. And um, a few days ago, I was responding to a friend of mine on Facebook. And someone posted, made a comment that she went to high school with Tim Scott. In South Carolina. Mm -hmm. This is somebody else, not my friend I was talking to. So I, I asked the person, I said, oh, you got to tell me about him. I said, what was he like in high school? Was he, I, I, was he the black kid who always got beat up and harassed by all the other black kids? You know, the nerdy black guy, you know, was he, you know, that's why he turned against his own, you know, what is it, you know? And she said, no, he wasn't like that at all. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, see, he really, truly is a mystery. Because if you look at this guy, he, he talked about all the times he was stopped by the police. He talked about the time when he was trying to enter the, the Senate chambers and an officer, some guard refused to let him in because he, just, he didn't know who he was. Some black guy can't, can't come in. And he tells the story, like, can't you see my Senate lapel pin? And the, and the guard said, I know the pen, I don't know you. So if you keep talking about all these indignities you have suffered all your life, I don't understand how you can turn around and be, I'm going to say it, be a lawn jockey for the Republican Party and for Donald Trump. I don't understand you. I really don't. Uh, what trauma happened in your life that you feel that this is, this, this is your avenue out? I don't get it. And, um, and I think the problem there is that, like, he probably looks at it as, like, an individual issue, right? Because um, instead of looking at it as, like, a collective problem, you know, he probably, I mean, I don't want to get into, like, armchair psychiatry or anything here because, like, I ultimately don't know the man. But, um, you know, I, I think a big problem with, um, with, like, being able to, experience all those indignities and still say, but I'm still going to support this party that upholds these indignities. It's like thinking from like a very individualistic perspective and not a collective perspective and thinking like, oh, well, if I had just done X, Y, Z, then that wouldn't have happened. And so, you know, black people just need to do X, Y, Z, and then suddenly racism goes away. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's absurd. Like, it's a completely absurd notion, but I think a lot of people do still subscribe to this idea of, like, racism as, like, individual acts and not, like, something collective and, like, not something that, you know, it's not a case of you, individual, just have to pull your pants up or, you know, speak proper English, whatever that actually is, because English is kind of like a pigeon language already. But, like, there, there's not, not enough people realizing, I think people who have that mentality don't realize that like, or either don't realize or just don't care <laughs> that, you know, this isn't like an individual problem and that like, you know, this really is systemic and like, I, I don't know. And I, I can't speak to like why, why that man, <laughs> you know, could like go through those experiences and still come out the other side of, come out the other side of that being Republican. <laughs> Well, he's, yeah, he, well, he certainly cannot blame it on the Vietnam War, uh, like the character Paul in uh, the movie mm -hmm. Defy Bloods. All right, I'm going to uh, close down this uh, interview, this discussion, with two questions that I'd like both of you to answer. Uh, the first one is to uh, sort of place Defy Bloods, in your opinion, in uh, this, just the whole backlog of Spike Lee movies and uh, tell folks which movies that you really recommend, Spike Lee movies that you recommend. And finally, I would love to hear each of you comment about uh, the, um, the, the latest developments in Gone with the Wind. 
uh, which is something that Sergio and I mm. briefly discussed before we went on air. And I said, Sergio, save it for the air because I know he's going to have a riff. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know a riff is coming. Uh, we could probably do a whole show on Gone with the Wind. Uh <laughs> Uh, but, you know, here we are segment, uh, segueing it into like the last five minutes. So, uh, Daniel, we'll start with you. Uh, general thoughts on where this movie fits in the pantheon of Spike Lee movies and the movies that you would recommend um, from Spike Lee's past for our listeners. Okay, the five was, I would put it, I mean, I'll, I'll just put it like, I won't put it in my top ten. <laughs> um, I... I just, I just didn't. I, I just couldn't get into it. Um, there were some redeeming qualities, like we talked about earlier, but like there's so many other movies that he's made that I think are so much stronger. Um, like, well, for example, his documentaries. Like, I think he is a brilliant documentarian. Um, Four little girls um, about the 15th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham. Um, I think that was really well done. Um, when the levees broke about um, Hurricane Katrina, uh, I think those, I think like those are like some of like his best movies, period. Um, and then, you know, fiction wise, um, you know, of course there's Do the Right Thing, of course there's Malcolm X. Um, um, I really enjoyed School Day personally. Um, <laughs> um, part of that was like kind of my inspiration for going to an HBCU. Uh, and um but then there's also his other movies that don't really get a lot of um attention that i think are just brilliant um well crooklyn does get attention I, I still don't think it gets enough but i think crooklyn is like one of his best films um particularly because it centers um black girlhood in a way that his movies usually don't um that's actually something that has kind of bugged me about a lot of his movies is like the way black women and black girls tend to be portrayed or just not even portrayed at all. But I think Crooklyn was like really good. Um, 25th Hour, I think that's like one of his best movies. Clockers, I think is really good as well. Um, Summer of Sam, I think is oh another really great movie yeah. um, that <laughs> people don't really talk about. I but know. like, I thought that it was like, it was really weird, but like also um, really focused. And then I think it just really got at a mood of like paranoia and instability that um, I have no idea why, but I can really relate to it now. <laughs> so, um, I, I definitely think that's uh, that's like one of like his um his stronger work. And then actually, Sergio, you brought up another movie that um, is underrated, but I think it's actually really good. Get on the bus. Um, I recently rewatched it, and um and I was thinking like, oh yeah, this is this is good. Why don't people talk about this either? Um, there's definitely some issues with it that I think is like kind of a product of the time. Like there is one, there, there are some parts of it where it's like, Ooh, okay. Homophobia is like, cool. <laughs> like really heavy on display here. But um, for the most part, I think that is like another one of his stronger movies. Absolutely. Summer Sam. Great flick. Uh, just saying that Daniel brought back memories. I've seen that. That I mean, I lived. Sergio and I lived through the summer of '77, the summer of Sam. So the strong memories of that whole yeah, summer. Yeah, but we thank God we weren't in New York. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Thank you yeah. for once. Thank God I was in Chicago. Sergio, uh, <laughs> same question. Um, I make this very brief. I think I think Five uh, was in the top five of the pictures. I, I really do. Uh, if I had to take. I have to go back and take a look at Summer of Sam. I just watched it again two years ago. It's always missed me. Um, um, I, it just recently came on a Blu-ray, and I have it. I just haven't had a chance to look at it. But I probably will this weekend because, you know, it, 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 I, 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 I understand what he wanted to do, and just through his versatility that, you know, I can deal with all kinds of things. And I want to take a look at it again. 25th Hour, I think it's really still underrated. I think 25th Hour is really remarkable. Um, I was, and then I, I, I had to say Jungle Fever. Yeah, it's kind of messy, like all his movies. <laughs> but, um, yeah, very messy. Um, I think it deals with a lot of things that are going on today. 
I just watched it again maybe about a month ago. And I go like, boy, this film can really play today. You know, if you watch this film, I think it's really remarkable. Um, uh, like a lot of times, you don't know exactly where these two story strands are going. And even at the end, they really don't collect it all much in a way. But um, uh, I, have to, I have to give them A for effort. And I think it's ambitious. And uh, also, I think at, at times it's really funny. I think it's really funny. Um, so I will, I will say, that's what I will say about the, about the fight. And Crooklyn. You've got to put Crooklyn on the list because you celebrated well, it last yeah, well, year. Yeah, well, I... <laughs> <laughs> got to put Crooklyn on that list. I love Crooklyn. Well, unfortunately, we won't be able to do it again, anything similar this year. Maybe next year we'll see. Uh, all right. And uh, so your thoughts on Gone with the Wind? Well, you know, uh, Goes to Win is one of the, one of the most popular movies ever made, one of the most legendary, famous movies ever made. A lot of it has to do with nostalgia or would be nostalgia, or we could just, I'm talking about white people, or we could just go back to that time when, when you know, black people weren't angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it was way it worked, which, it, of course, it wasn't the way that it was back then. It's a very rose-colored nostalgic view, right? You can admire the film for its technical achievement and all that, but yeah, it's a troublesome movie. Now, um, recently, I did a talk to Zoom-wise about, um, um, oh God, Song of the South and another problematic movie, the Disney film. And I said that, you know, I don't think films like this should be this be uh, banned or censored. I think it's ridiculous. You know, I don't think anything should be banned. You know, you have the right to see it or not to see it. But um, I think that films, particularly films that deal with sensitive, um, you know, racial stereotypes, uh, have to be put in context. They really have to be put in context so people can understand. And I think that uh, what HBO is doing is the right thing. That, you know, uh, uh, Jacqueline Stewart at University of Chicago, uh, who's also a host of Island Movies on TCM, on Turner Classic Movies Sunday Night, and who has been a longtime close friend of mine for like 25, 30, 25 years, um, she is going to do this introduction now for Going to Win on HBO. And I think that she was the perfect person to do it, and I think that's the way to do it. You have to put these films into the context. Because, as I like to say, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? Hmm. And um, when you look at movies such as Gone with the Wind or Breath of a Nation or Song of the South, um, you see traces of that in black stereotypes that we even still see today. So you have to put everything in context, uh, particularly movies such as that. Uh, so people can understand um, the distortions of the movie, the inaccuracies of the movie, uh, and to put it into what did this film back then say about our the situation that we are in today. Well put. I, I feel the same way uh, even about Tom Cotton's essay uh, in the New York Times. We won't go into that. But if the New York Times, you're going to publish it, then you should have disclaimers, explanations, annotations, put it in context, show how it comes out of our racist past, going back to George Wallace and Richard Daly, Shoot to Kill. I'm with you 100%, Sergio. You don't just bury the stuff. Use it to educate people and, and uh, help them out a little bit. Uh, Daniel? Right. I mean, you know, you look at what's going on with the Aunt Your Mama, Aunt Your Mama pancake thing, mm-hmm. and now with Uncle Ben. And I predicted that. I said, Nick, you're going to be Uncle Ben. Yeah. And they're, now they're going to change Uncle Ben. And how about that cream of wheat guy? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't need to think about the paint. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it just, you know, I mean, it's, it's been around for so long, for so many decades, that we actually don't even think about it. You know, we don't even consider it, that all of these are old racist tropes that have been around for a century. As a matter of fact, there was an article I read today that went into the history of the imagery of 
Aunt Jemima, which is fascinating, yeah. absolutely fascinating. And it goes all the way back to 1875 to an old minstrel song about Aunt Jemima, which then uh, a company took the use of the logo for a pancake mix, and, and then he hired various actresses and people to actually play the parts in personal appearances. It, it's a fascinating history. Don't even know about mm-hmm. that yeah. because it's been so long and time has gone on that we forget about that. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff has to be brought to light. And if white people get upset, I, I mean, I've, I've read some of the dumbest responses <laughs> by people who are upset. Yeah. It's just one guy, just this one white guy who said he's upset that they're getting rid of it because he grew up in this all white town in a small white neighborhood. And her smiling face on the box was the only black face I ever saw for most of my childhood. And oh, so no. She was a comforting, you know, some, uh, image to me. And I was like, oh, shut oh, up. No. Oh, no. <laughs> shut up. Why would you say that out loud? Oh, no. <laughs> shut up. Oh, uh, wow. Search. Uh, yeah. Search. Well, yeah. Well, Go um, ahead, Daniel. Well, I do want to make a point about that Tom Cotton op-ed. I don't think that's quite the same thing as, um, you know, as far as like kind of cultural artifacts and like showing that, like, I think like he, um, like that, like what he was proposing was like, you know, literally like declaring war on other American citizens. Um, so I wouldn't quite put that in the same um, the same category. Like, I, I actually don't think that. I actually think it was irresponsible to run that, but that's, like, another rant. Oh, well, they, it was very irresponsible. As, yeah, very irresponsible to run it so, um, once you ran yeah, it. And, and by the way, but getting back to, to this mm-hmm. point about cultural artifacts, um, I definitely do agree that, you know, they need to be seen, you know, because, like, I think, like, people need to know that, like, you know, this history wasn't that long ago. And like, you know, we're still seeing, you know, we're still seeing that reverberating now. And so, you know, I mean, like, you know, there's like a direct connection between like Aunt Jemima and then, you know, the Pine Saw Lady. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that, that's like a very specific trope that keeps coming up. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, I think like it helps to like see like there's like a history of this. And like, that's like why people like look at that like, ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> And um, and I do think that, like, you know, with Disney, for example, kind of, like, burying their, um, you know, like, their vault of, like, racist films, it's like, that kind of lets them off the hook, you know? It's like, no, like, you produced this, you released this, you made money off of it, so let people still see what your company was responsible for, but, like, put it in context and, like, have, you know, hosts or even, like, I was, like, thinking of... I was thinking, like, as you guys were talking, like, they should have, like, a pop-up video kind of thing for, like, um, just, like, annotating the movie, like, as you go along. So, like, as you watch Gone with Absolutely. the Wind or as you watch mm-hmm. um, Birth of a Nation, like, you can, like, have, like, a pop-up, like, um, you know, the clan, mm-hmm. like, use this as, like, you know, um, like, the clan, like, took ideas from Birth of a Nation. Like, the whole cross-burning thing didn't, like, wasn't a thing until, like, they saw that in the movie. So, you know, having like concepts like that, I think, is is a lot more helpful than just kind of like burying it and saying like, oh well, you know, we we can't look at that anymore because it's just so bad. It's like no, like we need to look at that. Yeah. To, you know, like like you were just saying, Sergio, like we need to know where you know where all of this is coming from, so like we can make sure that like we're not continuing, you know, these tropes over and over into the future. Uh, Dana- yeah, and by the way, let me just add one other thing too. Take all the statues down. Take all those Confederate statues down. Don't forget, they're tra- they were traitors, traitors, you know, who started a war against a legitimate government to keep slavery. They were traitors. You know, you don't have, who, what other country has monuments to traitors? Except the United States. What other countries named army bases and military bases after traitors? Thank God we got Grant Park. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> what is the deal here? You know, take yeah. them all down. Put some in the museum. Take them down. Christopher Columbus? Take them down. Gee, people forget. I don't care 
any of the Italians, oh, let me tell you, okay, any Italians listening, here's story Christopher Columbus. He comes to the, 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 the island of Hispaniola, right? Yeah. Okay, there were two tribes of Indians, the Caribs, and which comes from, which, which, which later become the word Caribbean, the Caribs and the Anarok, right? They said, hmm, they'll make Greek mm-hmm. slaves. In a hundred years, they were all dead. From slavery and from syphilis, a gift from the Europeans. So what did they do? They said, hmm, who's going to be a slave now? Who's going to work this land? You know, we can go to Africa. And we can bring them over. And that's how the whole ball of wax started. Okay? So, um, um, take all the Christopher Columbus statues now. I don't care if he wants to start fist fights over it. Did you hear yesterday's show by any chance, Sergio? Yeah, I heard. I didn't know about it. Oh my God! I think you must have heard that one. Yeah. Colonialists taking that put, jumping in the Chicago River. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Judge, that's Sergio, not me. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that Judge, man. Uh, all right, before we go, Danielle, just tell folks uh, what stories you've done. Promote yourself a little bit where they can read your stuff, where they can get in touch with you if they want to. Everybody knows how to get in touch with Sergio Black Harvest. Tell folks a little bit, uh, you know, give a shout-out about yourself. Oh, um, well, I also run a site called Black Women Directors where I highlight the work of um, black women and non-binary filmmakers around the globe. So, um, yeah, definitely check that out if you want to learn more about Black women in film (laughs) and also um, read some of my writing about film. Um, It's at blackwomendirectors.co. All right, very good. Thank you. Anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can reach me through Facebook uh, under my name. I'm under Facebook under my name. I'm also now back on Twitter. (laughs) You've been kicked off Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. But I can't, I, I don't want to reveal that because they may be listening and ban me again. <laughs> He's kind of so, getting kicked off um, Twitter, Danielle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like that's a good, like, that's a good thing. If you've gotten, like, kicked off Twitter, I feel like they're doing something right. <laughs> uh, he's been kicked off a few times, and then he comes on our show and we no, talk about it. only once, but once was, well, I thought it was twice. permanently. Okay, permanently. It was a permanently once, permanently once. Right. Once right. was a suspension. And then it's just an alias now, you know? He's under uh, the real Donald Trump. That's Sergio. No, just kidding. That's just... That's right. no, that hardly. <laughs> I'm under the real Tim Scott. I don't know which one. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Sergio Mims and Danielle. Uh, this is bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.